0: Hello, Late Seeders. It's Jason here. Uh, Just to let you know that this is a bonus episode of Late Seeding, taken from a recording that we did way back when uh, this show was a live show on YouTube. So expect um, differences in audio quality, because we are recording this off of a Hangout off of Google, and also expect the format to be very different. We're not nearly as jokey, but we've received some requests for uh, for our opinions on Jaws, and we kind of already did a review of it. So... So, here it is, Jaws, from two years ago. Enjoy! All this machine does is swim and eat and make little sharks, and that's all. Hi everybody, and welcome to a late seating. Today we're going to be doing a late seating review of that family feel-good movie about summertime fun jaws and i think it's perfect jaws takes place over fourth of july day weekend this is fourth of july day weekend and it's getting really close to its 40th goddamn anniversary yeah um welcome to the show if this is your first time here a brief explanation steve and i love films and we like reviewing films and uh we decided to get together and just talk about films for about an hour with whoever shows up today. Don't worry, if you miss this show, it will be posted later on. And, oh, I can hear myself in my own headphones because I'm an idiot. Um, so, Jaws, a quick rundown of the plot. There's a big shark, a great big motherfucking shark that likes eating people off of a particular <laughs> stretch of land <laughs> off of a tiny island called Amity. The problem is is that their sheriff is hydrophobic and kind of wants to protect the people there, but the mayor, Mayor Vaughn, and the business owners on Amity Island don't want people to know that there's a shark chewing up people because it will uh, hurt their summer business. They do all of their business in the summertime and now they've got a shark swimming in their biggest tourist attraction. Long story short, people get killed and they hire the most salty sailor that exists in 1975 to go out and hunt the shark. Spoiler, the shark dies. And now we'll move on to Jaws, which is much better than that idiotic description that I just put down. Steve, your opinion on Jaws.
1: You know... I think that one of the reasons why Steven Spielberg has gone on to have like the incredibly commercially successful career that he has had is because he directs this movie, and everything you just said about it in that sort of sarcastic plot summary is completely true, and he makes that movie work. Like, There's so much about Jaws that in the hands of a lesser director who didn't have the technical competence and who wasn't as good instinctively as a storyteller as Spielberg is, it would have been the biggest, schlockiest I mean, it would have been laughable, and it just would not have worked. And it does work. It works really, really well. And it works despite the fact that it has, like, kind of stock characters, and it does have this ins- this absurd premise of, like, not just a shark, but a humongous shark that doesn't just eat one or two people, but eats, like, everybody it comes in contact with. And it like, does this. it
0: in the meanest way possible. <laughs> yes. Slowly.
1: <laughs> yes, and it just—if you think about it, just in those flat terms—you're like, there's no way this movie could possibly be anything other than like mystery, science, theater fodder. But it's—it no. works really well. It's a really effective movie, and I think most of the credit for that goes to Spielberg.
0: Um, I agree that a lot of that credit goes to Spielberg. I described this when we talked about this last week. That Jaws is the most fabulous controlled accident ever put to, put to film. A lot of things went wrong with this movie. The pitch for this movie was basically there's a giant shark and it's killing people. And they're like, okay, well, where are we going to place it if we make it? Well, let's put, let's put it in the dumping ground, the place where no one go, when no one goes to go see a movie because everyone is outside camping, hiking, taking their vacations, going swimming. We'll dump it in the graveyard of film, which was at that time summer. It was a summer release. There was no such thing as summer box office. There was no such thing as the summer season for the film industry before Jaws. Jaws kind of kicked that off. Before Jaws came out and was such a huge hit in the summertime, the movies that were coming out were crap. And the studio knew that they, they felt that they had a good movie on their hand when they finally saw the final edited prod- product and they saw it in front of them. They said, you know what, this movie's pretty good. But it's still a movie about a giant shark eating people. How are we going to sell that? I mean, we, we're we definitely not going to put it out during Oscar season. That's for sure. No one's going to take it seriously. So they kind of dumped it in summer, and it became the first real massive hit and kind of changed the way the studios looked at summer programming. But as far as the production of the movie goes, the film was notorious for the number of problems it had, the unfinished script that it had, yeah. the casting difficulties that they had. Um but, you know, through adversaries adversity, sometimes great art is created. And that is the end result. That is what Jaws is. And if Spielberg hadn't persevered and stuck to his guns and been the director that he had been at that time, he was young, he was willing to take risks, he was willing to say, so Our mechanical shark doesn't work. Um, I'll figure out a way to film the attack scenes so that we don't have to see them. And the attack scenes where you don't see the shark are infinitely more terrifying and more effective than if there had been a giant rubber shark popping up every time that there was going to be a shark attack. The opening attack itself is really shocking. Despite the fact that there's no blood, no gore, It is all based on the reaction of the swimmer and what's happening to her on the surface of the water. We don't see Jaws, we don't see anything else, else, not until the very end. At its core, Jaws is an old-fashioned monster movie. You have the shark that is the monster. If you look at a 1950s movie, you had some stock characters. You had the monster, you had the local police officer who was good and just... You had sometimes a crooked politician, sometimes somebody you know, usually named Blackie who was put in some position of power who is not necessarily evil, but he's definitely a hindrance. You had the smart scientist, and sometimes you had the crusty guy who had a lot more experience and knew what he was doing. All of those elements are in this film, but the characters are drawn broadly. They're given backstories. They're given motivations. And luckily, they were all cast with very, very talented actors. Um, This is my favorite Robert Shaw movie, um, probably hands down. Um, And, well, you know what? It's also probably my favorite Richard Dreyfuss movie. Um, as well, which is too bad because it 's really early in his career. He has a lot more terrible films to make after this. Um, and not only that, but it's also my favorite Steven Spielberg movie, and it is one of my favorite films of all time. It is I thought for sure rewatching this yesterday that I was going to fall asleep. I have seen this movie too many times. I wore out two VHS tapes. When, in my earlier days before I got it on uh, DVD Blu-ray. And I've seen it so many times. and a tendency if you've seen something a lot of times and you're a little tired, you're going to fall asleep. This is still a movie that I will stay awake for. I know all the dialogue. I know all the scenes. I know everything that's going to happen. But I still watch it to the very end. And I mean the very end, even past the credits, just to make sure that this time, <laughs> like all the other times, that Brody... And Hooper make it to the fucking shoreline, which you know uh, when, I, when I first saw this as a little kid, I was like, they could get attacked by a, the monster the shark monster 's mom because they 're swimming around in blood, and they could be easily attacked. <laughs> the movie might not be over they the, they, they, you know so i 'll watch it all the way to the very end and um you know this as everyone i'm sure knows by this point the uh, aside from its fiscal impact on the industry and the way it kind of helped change things as far as the way movies are are produced and released it's also a heavily influential film as far as other as, as influencing other films down the line now there were a lot after jaws there were a lot of mm, Animals gone amuck movies. There were, I think, there was bees. I don't know if it was bees. It was like buzz. It was like killer bees. I don't know. A giant beaver. There were just like tons and tons. That was food of the gods. That was food of the gods. And it was giant rabbits. A night of the. I don't know if Night of the Lepus came out after this or before that. That's giant rabbits with DeForest Kelly. Um But all the way up to like, let's say, Lake Placid. Uh, uh, the Piranha remake that came out a few years ago that knew that it was a parody when it was being remade and actually has the Hooper character in that being killed at the very beginning. Yeah. Um, Jaws is a heavily influential film and not just because of its impact fiscally but because of its artistic impact. If you want to know how to engage an audience by not really having the greatest special effects in the world, but instead using your camera in an effective way, watch Jaws. If you want to have characters that the audience will completely engage in and you don't have to pander to a teen crowd or any crowd at all, watch Jaws. I mean, I was looking at it this way. If you made Jaws now, Sheriff Brody would be a minor character, not your main character. He would be the side character off to the side going, I don't know you kids. You're... (laughs) There's a shark out there, and I I don't think you should be going in the water. And the focus would probably be his kid, who would be a teenager, and his girlfriend, and Quint would be in league with – Quint would be the guy who's actually attracting the shark because he hates the summer tourists, and he'd be a bad guy, and – Cooper probably wouldn't be in it because God forbid we have science contact or any kind of scientist at all in the movies and there would be lots of CGI shark foo and it wouldn't be the same film. But you can use Jaws as a way to look at it and say, okay, this is essentially a movie about a giant shark eating people, but it's completely engaging. The characters are interesting. The dialogue is crisp and funny. Um, It moves along. Some people – I've read a couple of reviews. I said it's a little slow it's not slow it's slow if your mind tends to wander after a couple of seconds of being on the same shot there's nothing there is no wasted space in this film if you think that there is a lot of wasted space in the film then maybe it's not really a film for you maybe you need something where something explodes or someone yells or there's a gunfire gunshot going off every second i've said it before they're really not making movies like this anymore they movies do not take their time anymore to tell a story. Scripts hit you over the head with exposition rather than letting the audience figure it out and I'll use this as an example. In the scene where we're introduced to Quint it is at a city council meeting where they're all arguing and fighting about what to do about the shark and then Quint scratches his nails down the chalkboard across a crude drawing of the shark. His dialogue is, "You all know who I am, and you know what I do for a living." The audience doesn't, and he never says it. He never says, "I'm a." In today, they say, "I'm a fisherman. I've been fishing my whole life. I've fished everything. I once caught me a whale." I, you know, he would yeah. go his whole backstory, or even worse. Brody would go, uh, who's that guy? And then someone else would tell us who he was. Instead, they trust the audience enough to know, oh, that guy's a fucking badass, and all these people are a little afraid of him <laughs> because of what he does. Now, in truth, he's a charter fisherman, and hes we get a little bit more of his backstory, but it's not rammed down our, sh- our throat in obvious expository dialogue. We're allowed to discover who these people are. You know, the fact that Hooper is a more than likely a trust fund kid because he has he has money or that Brody yeah, Brody reveals what are probably his motivations for having moved from New York and being a New York police officer to Amityville or Amity Island, excuse me <laughs> um, because he goes on this thing about how the city was dirty and you could never really feel like you change anything or, or, or be a, a or or affect any change on a community and how in a small town like Amity he could be that kind of guy. That's obviously something that he wanted, that he wanted to be able to make a difference is what he says in the script. So when I watch Jaws, I also look at it as a kind of a primer to say, if you really want to know what makes a movie work, pay attention to how this movie is written. Don't just watched, thinking, oh, I'm going to watch a bunch of people get chewed up because that shit's fun too. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I enjoy watching the or kid simultaneously drown and get torn apart at the same time <laughs> But as much as the next guy. But it's the way it's been shot and the way it's been set up and the way that that death has um, after effects that makes the movie great. Uh Steve anything else you want to add?
1: Yeah, well I just it, it's a really it may be the best example at least from Hollywood of mm-hmm. the power of film and of the power of of really skillful competent filmmaking to elevate source material. Yeah, because uh yeah, this is this is a monster movie. This is a giant monster movie. But because it because Spielberg was young and audacious, and because he was familiar with Alfred Hitchcock and with the the elements of suspense, and he knew how to build to a payoff. That's something we've talked about a couple of times in these reviews we've done so far. We talked about it with Godzilla, how it's so important, and it's sort of a lost art among big commercial filmmakers nowadays, uh, to build to a payoff. Don't just show the shark right away. Let us and and the thing it works so well with Jaws because there's a perfect explanation for why we don't see the shark because we see the attacks if we see the attacks underwater we see them from shark's point of view if we see the attacks above the water well the shark it doesn't come above the water he's under the water so there's a perfect explanation for why we don't see him it doesn't feel forced and he uses that to build suspense so when we finally do see the shark and I you know watching it the other day I thought you know the People always say, you know, Spielberg is a genius because he made a a, a a shark attack movie where you never see the shark. That's not exactly true. In the last act, you see the shark all the time. The shark is constantly there. But you have to wait an hour and a half before you get to that point. Uh, and that's so. It, so it's a payoff. It's not just, well, here's a shark and it's eating people. It's you don't actually see the shark until you get to the end of the movie, until it has meaning in the story, you know. Um, it also strikes me. It struck me. Uh, I've had this thought before, but just rewatching it this past week, the the power of having a story that that rests on uh, a trio of heroes. Yeah, uh, it's the it's the formula. It's the classic Star Trek formula. Uh, you see it in the uh, in in uh, the the Dark Knight with uh, Batman, Commissioner Gordon, and uh, Harvey Dent. Mm-hmm. There's there's something about it when it's done well, and it's formulaic, and it's kind of a trope. But at the same time, the reason it's a trope is because when it's done well, it works really, really well. Having the the trio of heroes that are all sort of different types, but they relate to each other, they fill in each other's gaps. So you have Brody, who's sort of the everyman type guy. Uh, you have Hooper, who is the man of science, and then you have Quint, who is the man of emotion and experience and instinct, you know, who's, he knows how to get the shark because he's been doing this for 30 years or whatever, and he just... He thinks he, a, he knows how to get the shark. He, yeah, he, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he has like an innate, instinctive understanding of it. So you have these three types, and we see them not only approach the problem in different ways with different things to worry about and different techniques but they also come to appreciate each other and and come to become friends and allies you know there's all that uh, maybe i when people say like that it's that the movie is is too long or that it drags in places i think i have to think maybe some of what they're talking about is when they're on the boat in the last act and they sort of there's there are those quiet spaces before the final big shark attack where they're under they're they're below decks and they, there's that famous scene where they're comparing scars you know yeah. And then there's uh, there's if Quince. there's
0: anyone who thinks that the comparing scars scene is draggy or oh, the yeah. mirror scene with his son after uh, he gets slapped by mm. uh, by uh, the Kitner by Mrs. Kitner. Um, I'm sorry. There's a whole lot of movies that you're not going to like that have lots of draggy scenes that have emotional impact. Sorry about that.
1: All this characterization (laughs) shit. What is with that? (laughs) Uh, and then and, then, and that, that, that same part of the film with the the, the scars comparison scene is is one, either the scar scene or Quint's monologue about the Indianapolis. Those are probably the two most among people who talk about Jaws and who really appreciate it those are the two maybe most appreciated scenes as far as like the character scenes okay. and uh, and Quint's monologue where he he relates his experience on being on the U.S. Indianapolis and delivering the atomic bomb to Japan and then being, you know, sunk and surrounded by sharks on the way back.
0: Having the worst shark week ever. Yeah, I mean... I've heard it described.
1: Pretty much. And, um, And, you know, that monologue itself is sort of... As sort of the subject, there's like a lore surrounding that where you know for a long time it was well maybe Robert Shaw wrote it himself or who actually wrote the monologue or and it's kind of like the the Blade Runner the Roy Batty Rutger Hauer monologue the Tears in the Rain thing where there's there's you know a lot of people still to this day will say like oh you know he improv that you know he mm-hmm. he sort of made that up on the spot it's not really That's true not
0: really I mean Shaw had a lot to do with it yeah uh, Shaw I think' the, a lot to do with
1: it yeah the, the I think the story Spielberg tells is that it was it was uh the concept of the of the Indianapolis being a part of Quint's backstory was was brought up by one of the original screenwriters, and then John mm-hmm. Milius, I think, actually wrote a really, really long version of it. Yeah. Then Robert Shaw himself actually edited it and chopped it down to a more usable length. So, I mean, it, it is a really interesting story, but it, it's such a famous monologue, and mm-hmm. it, it gives you so much insight into Quint's character, uh, just in time, too. <laughs> yeah, uh, that you know, it has like sort of its own folklore surrounding it. So there's, you know, there's a the lot about that, Jaws. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead.
0: Well, the thing that I I hear a lot of people compare the third act of Jaws to Moby Dick, and I disagree with that. The only similarity between Moby Dick and the third act of Jaws is that they're both set on water, and there's a big thing swimming around a boat. The Motivations in Moby Dick, they make very clear that Ahab is out for revenge. He is out for what he believes is his due. He has been hurt and scarred, and he is overlooking everyone and everything in order to uh, set to right what he felt was a, a grievous wrong done to him. Jaws, the Quint character, who everyone wants to compare to Ahab, is completely different. When we see Quint, we see Quint who is very confident in his knowledge of the sea, the knowledge of the animals in the sea, and what we see is him being challenged by this shark that does nothing that he expects the shark to do. They're in, in the process of trying to catch him, they, put, um, they harpoon him and attach barrels to the harpoons. This would prevent a normal shark from being able to go under the water because the barrels are buoyant. It also helped the filmmakers have something that would go around the water with these yellow barrels instead of actually having yeah. to have the shark. So it was another go around. But for Quint, putting a, a barrel in a shark, basically that's it. He, they'll have to chase it a bit, but it'll get tired. It won't be able to submerge, and they'll be able to kill it quickly. They put three barrels in him. And it still goes under the water. And you can see in Shaw's performance that his entire world is slowly being destroyed until finally what he does is he basically destroys the engine of the boat trying to lure the shark into the shallows in order for him to kill it. It's not revenge for Quint. He needs, by the end of the film, he's driven by a need to set his world right. And the world that's right to him is his ability to be able to kill this shark, but at every corner, and, it, and the same thing happens to Hooper too. But Hooper has a different reaction. Hooper is kind of amazed. He is at heart a scientist. When we first see the shark in that third act, Hooper is delighted mm-hmm. by the shark. He is excited by what he's seeing, what he, the pictures he's taking. You know, trying to get, uh, trying to get uh, Chief Brody to go out to the <laughs> end of the boom. So that he could get a picture of the shark and scale all of that stuff. Um, so for him, even he has to be challenged to a point in which they will go to desperate means in order to kill the shark, because he, even he realizes that nothing is happening according to scientifically as far as he's concerned. So his his worldview has been challenged. Brody is the one that's getting off scot free and is able to look at the situation the way it's supposed to. When he says, "We need a bigger boat." That's, he is the one that is thinking the clearest out of all of them at that point. Um, Let's talk about the act structure in the movie because they are very, they're very kind of, they're very different and they're very clearly, this movie is set into three different acts that have a different feel for each act. And the opening act, to me, really does kind of start off like a thriller, kind of like a, a, not necessarily a whodunit. But if you walked into Jaws not knowing that it was a giant shark, you'd have no idea what in the hell it was that killed um, Chrissy at the beginning of the movie, the uh, the, the nude bather at the very beginning. Um, and it's kind of like an investigation, um, a little bit of a CSI kind of feel to it, where we are slowly introduced to the town, we're slowly introduced to its people, the Brody family, what kind of town it is, you know, Mayor Vaughn, and then the second half of the film is the apocalypse for this town, <laughs> basically. The second uh, second act is when the entire town dumbly decides to open its beaches for the Fourth of July Day weekend and regret it, with a whopping one death. It was one. It was poor Ted out on his little dinghy. Yeah. And his uh, popped-out someone... eyeball. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's... <laughs> that's... <laughs> that's
1: uh ben that's Gardner. the guy under the water ben yeah, Gardner. The yeah, that,
0: there, yeah the the sequence that was actually thought up later and filmed in someone's swimming pool <laughs> um and then uh the final act is more it kind of becomes a, a little bit like an adventure story the music changes um mm-hmm. you know they have the the chase music it kind of changes everything goes tits up in the end but it, ha- it definitely has a more distinctive feel. I remember the first time I watched this when I was old enough to appreciate it, because the first time I saw it, I was six. Um, when I saw it when I was old enough, I was like, "Oh wow, this is like this is kind of fun. This, this movie isn't like I thought it was going to be. I thought it was just going to be kind of scary monster for the entire time, not these guys out on the, out on the water, you know, jauntily hunting this shark. Um. Did you do you see uh, differences in what I what I saw in the uh,
1: no? Right? I I think you're right. I think that the particularly the change in in feel and tone from the first two acts to the third act. I, I noticed that one most of all uh, because it becomes just about the guys on the boat. Like you leave behind Amity, you leave behind. Uh, the mayor and and the beach and all that and it just becomes like you like you just said it feels more like an adventure movie of let's go find the shark and and Spielberg stays on the boat like for the rest of the movie there aren't any little checkups like the mayor sitting nervously in his office going I wonder what's taking him so long like it's just about the three guys on the boat and and I was thinking also and you know, it's not this is Jaws in its just in and of itself uh, overall it's a great demo reel for Spielberg because all of his all of his great techniques even the ones that much later maybe people would start to look on as like crutches of his or you know stylistic things that he does that maybe he does a little too often but you know it it's a great showpiece for what Spielberg does best as a director and it's also a great showpiece for John Williams the composer because uh it, you get For the first two thirds of the movie, if you're familiar with John Williams from, you know, like the Indiana Jones movies or Star Wars or Superman, it doesn't really Jaws doesn't sound at first like a typical John Williams score because it's very minimalist, it's very quiet, and there are lots of scenes where there's no music at all, where where the score doesn't enter into it. And then you get to that third act where they're out on the water, and it's totally a John Williams score. I mean the traveling music, the big epic, lush John Williams sweeping traveling music. You know, like they. I think of uh, like the the helicopter approach in Jurassic Park. Yeah, it's that same sort of feel, like this sort of lush, epic. Uh, Without the bombast. Music. Without, yeah, not as bombastic, but still, but you know, so it you you can look at it that way too. That it's if it's sort of a nice summary of John Williams as a composer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I think that 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 change in in focus from one act to another is one of the things that keeps the movie fresh and makes it so that it doesn't feel like it's too long because it is a 2 hour and i think 2 hours and 5 minutes uh, yeah uh it it's 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 over two hours long, which to some people might seem like a long movie, although I don't know if people would think that today when like two and a half hours has become like the standard running time of blockbuster movies it's like you you can't possibly do a movie that's ninety minutes long. What are you crazy <laughs> uh but Jaws doesn't feel like it's too long. it feels no. just right, and that's because one of the reasons I think is because you do have it's it's broken down into a fairly cleanly cleaved act structure so when you get to the third act it almost feels like okay you've gotten to know the characters you know you've been with Brody from the beginning you've been with Quint and Hooper for about 30-40 minutes at this point you, you've gotten to know them and they've come together as as a group and now they're sort of setting off on an adventure mm-hmm. so it feels it doesn't feel like oh Christ is this movie ever going to get over Like it feels like it's not running out of steam like it's gaining steam as it goes right. into that that climax
0: Watching this movie, it made me wish that Spielberg would do another scary movie. He's really, really, really good at it. Because um, when I was rewatching this movie, I said he really hasn't made a movie like Jaws. A lot of people want to say Jurassic Park, and and I don't really view Jurassic Park as being necessarily a scary movie, although there are elements in it that are kind of uh, tension filmed, certainly. Um, I'm thinking more along the lines of, until the very end, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is a terrifying movie. (laughs) Uh, Especially the scene where the little kid gets taken. That entire sequence is frightening. And most of the film is kind of... I remember when I showed it to my, my kids for the first time, they were scared shitless. And despite the fact that it says Toby Hoover as a director on Poltergeist... Boy, you really couldn't tell that that was Toi Hooper directing it and not Steven Spielberg directing yeah. that freaking movie. Um, he's really good at building tension. He's very good at those kinds of scenes. He's really good at getting people frightened. And he hasn't really made a movie that has been that kind of intense and scary um, in a while. I kind of liken Jaws into the series of films that he was making where they kind of took place in modern times – largely in suburbia. Um, Jaws, small town, not big city, regular middle class people, Close Encounters, small town, suburbia, middle class to lower class people, Poltergeist, the same thing, E.T., the same thing. Um, And he's kind of gotten away from that. He's He's doing more period pieces, he's doing more other things. One of the nice things about those set of films was that they were set now, and they were entertaining films that we could recognize and believe in at the time. And he hasn't really made, I I don't think, uh, uh, whether it's an action film or a uh, a, a thriller or a horror movie or anything like that, that's set in the modern time that, um, and I think that that's a drawback because I really felt that that was kind of where his wheelhouse was. That's what he was really, really good at. I'm not saying that his other movies are terrible. I'm just saying that those, that set of films early in his career kind of set him apart from a lot of other people because no one really thought, well, why are you making it suburbia? No, the people live there. Why would they want to see a movie set there? And, you know, he's the first director that I could think of that actually did anything in, in like, uh, the planned communities. Uh, Poltergeist and, and E.T. specifically where you had these kind of cookie cutter houses next to each other and not a whole lot of plants set off in the hills next to some big unnamed city. Um... Jaws is as near as I can tell one of his mo also one of his more naturalistic films, if you could call it that um there is obvious dialogue, but it, the dialogue feels more. He casts a lot of non-actors in roles, so they feel more natural in the parts. Uh, a line that I quoted to Steve when I told him that the thing was up was, that's one bad hat, Harry. Yeah. Harry is not an actor. The, the, the old man with the, with the useless bathing cap on <laughs> was not an actor. Uh, the guys who catch the tiger shark midway through the film did not strike me as actors either, nor the guys who were going out fishing really struck me as actors. It was it was kind of more prevalent in the 1970s to have non-actors in roles because it gave it a more realistic feel. There were a lot of directors who were kind of going for that kind of more gritty, realistic feel. But it does really lend to your being able to invest into this movie if people don't look like they came out of central casting. And there's a lot of that. All the townspeople... There no one's really there's no drop dead gorgeous people in major roles or even slightly minor roles in this film. His deputy is a dork, not some hunky not some hunky guy. Um you know, the the city council all look like they should, which are nondescript kind of chubby <laughs> you know uh yeah. Middle income bureaucrats on in that you would expect to see in a small town. The guy who's complaining to Sheriff Brody about the kids karate chopping his fence. <laughs> that guy was not an actor. I don't know where they came up with that dialogue. I doubt it was in the script. More than likely they said, Hey, you want to be in the movie? We're filming in your hometown. You go up to a complaint to that guy about the kids karate chopping your fence, and so you just you know, you go up and you do it. Um <laughs> And also the kid, a- and this movie also has kid actors. And guess what? They act like kids, and I don't hate them.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. I
0: really don't hate the kids. I know that they. I think they technically were actors and they were cast, but they don't act all the time. Yeah,
1: they weren't precocious little problem solvers, mm-hmm. like uh, which I like. Unfortunately, like a lot of kids in later Spielberg movies, kind of turn out uh, to be. You
0: know. Yeah. The, oh, this brilliant kid.
1: <laughs> Good thing that kid was there. I, 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 could,
0: I would love for there to be more movies where there weren't brilliant kids or kids with asthma. I'm getting tired of yeah. kids with asthma where they overcome some problem and then they don't need the inhaler anymore and they just throw <laughs> it away. Like a Goody. That's my favorite. <laughs>
1: Apparently, asthma is psychosomatic.
0: That's right. I always wanted the end of Goonies is when the, what's-his-name, throws his inhaler away, that he turns around and then has an asthma attack right there in front (laughs) of everybody.
1: The cut to black. Everybody turns around in (laughs) shock. Oh, my God! Cut to black. Why did you throw away inhaler? You know, you brought up something uh, just now that I I think is interesting, too, is that even though Jaws uh, is very much uh maybe the first modern hollywood blockbuster uh, you know it was it was had a, a huge wide release it was a summer release it was marketed like crazy the yeah. movie itself was pitched as the event not the cast yeah. you know uh i think uh someone commented uh i think on my when i when i, when I Mentioned I was going to do this on my you had to ask video this week. Someone said, and I said I referred to Jaws as like the first modern blockbuster. And someone said, well, what about like Airport or The Towering Inferno? And that's true, but those weren't really summer movies. They they were they were pushed for having all star casts. They were it was a a different animal. Yeah. Uh, but despite its status as sort of a, a watershed blockbuster, Jaws is also very much a product of. 1970s American cinema, and yeah. you can definitely see that in what you were just talking about, with you know the more naturalistic acting choices, with the non-professional actors cast in background roles, uh, and it, the 70s was the really the last time, maybe the first and last time that it was a major, great
0: time for film. You know, yeah,
1: that Hollywood Hollywood really cared about making good movies, like artistically good. Like there was a conscious effort among the major studios, to make culturally relevant, artistically impressive films.
0: They were uh, more willing to take a chance on something. Yeah. That, I mean, they wouldn't have made Jaws if the studio system hadn't been more open to the idea of, well, we'll make it, and hopefully it'll make its money back. Right. You know, it was pitched, and they said, oh, well, you know, the, the book was popular. We'll, we'll take this new guy, and we'll put him on it. And I don't think the studio was thinking, we're going to make a ton of money on this movie. I don't think – I think a lot of movies that we love from the 70s, you know, Dog Day Afternoon or any of the Scorsese films or, you know, The Godfather, which Mm -hmm. did come from a fairly popular book, all of those movies, if pitched today, may not – would probably not get made. And that's how much the industry has changed. From that time to this, there was more experimentation going on in the '70s. You know, there were a whole new set of toys for directors to play with because now you could do nudity and blood and and language and you know there was a shit ton of stuff that you you could include as content in in your movies in the '70s. So everyone tried everything, and um, Jaws is a product of it. I, I think it's kind of ironic that people point to Jaws and say that's the beginning of the end <laughs> for for the I mean, way
1: movies were yeah because it it unfortunately even though jaws was it jaws itself is a good example of those those uh priorities in the 70s uh the the lesson that was taken by hollywood was oh my god look how much money we made mhm and it it became instead of becoming instead of continuing that uh that tradition in the 70s of making you know of trying to make good movies It became, oh, who cares if it's good? We can market the shit out of it and release it to a thousand theaters at once, and we'll make a mint, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: Yeah. And, you know, it was cheaper to go to the movies back then than as compared to now. Um, They could do something for wide release and only have it be out for two weeks, and, hope, you know, they'll make their money. There was no after-video market. There was no cable, you know. Once it was out in movies, it showed up on the ABC movie of the week like within the next year or two years depending on how well the run uh, the run would go um, so Jaws kind of did make that change I always look at Jaws as kind of the beginning of it and Heaven's Gate is kind of the end of that old old studio system and for those people who don't know Heaven's Gate was probably the last time a studio sunk a lot of money into something that they wanted that and trusted a director to produce something that would at least make its money back and it failed. It nearly destroyed uh, UA, United Artists, um, and it just turned out to be this gigantic money boondoggle. And there were a couple of projects like that. Uh, Apocalypse Now might have wound up wound up that way, too. Because here was a guy off in the middle of nowhere making a movie. People couldn't contact him. Every time they contacted Francis Wercobula, he sounded more and more crazy. They had no idea if they were ever going to see this film. And, you know... So that whole era of kind of experimentation and, and trusting the director to come through on projects and giving money, funneling money to talent, um, Heaven's Gate kind of became kind of not just a punchline in the movie industry. It kind of became like a warning that said, look, we're, if you really want to almost close your studio, look what happened with United Artists and Heaven's Gate. And... You know, I the thing is, is that there were still great movies coming out after after Jaws came out. There was still, you know, drama season and Oscar season and all that other stuff, but a new thing had been added, and its influence would slowly, gradually become bigger and bigger and bigger throughout um, uh, the film industry every year. Jaws opened the door. Star Wars kicked the fuck down, and <laughs> said, "Guess what? Summer is." bankable. And after Star Wars, Superman came out, Mm -hmm. Alien came out, um, and they really started looking at Summer as being, we need something that will get people to get to the theaters, it's going to be bigger than we normally invest in, and we're really going, and some of them said, we're really going to handle this product every detail of the way, because we don't want to risk that much of an investment to have it fail. They still had lots of failures. Um... But overall, my final opinion on Jaws. What did you think I was going to say? <laughs> I, you know, I, I always, always heard that you hated this movie. Nah, I know. Oh, I should have come out of. The, I should have come out of the game. Fuck this movie. Fuck Jaws films. I hate this stupid movie. <laughs> you don't, don't even you see the see shark. It? Rats. I'm more scared of rats. Um the movie, as far as I'm concerned, is a masterpiece. It is, if you love movies, it's required watching, and I know a lot of people go, well, I don't like scary movies, or I don't like sharks. Believe me, there is more there than just scary and sharks to this movie that will keep you engaged. If you like drama and you like characters, you will love Jaws. Um, And the other thing is, is, I almost made this my favorite film of all time, and I'm going to have to do some more self-examination before I could make such a bold statement <laughs> at this time. But if it's not number one, it's definitely in my top three. Um, I urge you, if you've not seen it, please go see it. If you have seen it, watch it again. It's Fourth of July Day weekend. We'll Go watch a bunch of people have a really bad, bad Fourth of July Day weekend. <laughs> and uh, I heartily recommend Jaws. Steve?
1: Oh, I heartily recommend it, too. I mean... It- it it's it succeeds on its own as a movie, perfectly well. It's an incredible. It's just an incredibly well executed thriller, and and there's something there's such a pleasure. Like you were saying earlier about how you wish Spielberg would make another movie like this. Uh, I mean, there's something so satisfying about seeing a movie that uh, that is that is just well executed. That just it's you. You can see what it sets out to do, and it does it like it hits all of its beats just right. And that's Jaws. It's just it's just a perf. It's the perfect m- movie of its type. You know, it's a wonderful, incredibly exciting movie. It has great humor that doesn't push too hard. That doesn't go over the top. That they're comes not from the
0: jokes. They're just yeah. you know, they're character derived. Funny moment. Yeah, like
1: like like uh, Quint crushing the beer can and Hooper crushing the cup. I mean, just really Improvi-
0: that was an improvised scene.
1: Yeah, and it yeah. it, yeah, yeah, that was improvised, and it's but it's so perfect and it's so funny because it's not just you know the juxtaposition, the tough guy and the not so tough guy. It's like the characters interacting with each other and having a moment and goofing with each other, and it's just so wonderful. Um, and yeah, it's and the other thing about it is if for if. By some freak chance, anyone watching this has not seen the movie. When you see the movie, you will be amazed how many jokes you will suddenly get. Like, how many jokes <laughs> on The Simpsons you will suddenly get. Because th- it's one of those cultural touchstones. Like, if you watch episodes of The Simpsons, like especially back from the 90s, or you watch like, Mystery Science Theater, Jaws is referenced in ways obvious and subtle constantly. I mean, you will, you will understand why if you ever watch Saturday Night Live, like during the 90s, and you saw Daryl Hammond do his uh, Richard Dreyfuss impersonation, he's doing Richard Dreyfuss from Jaws. That's, that's exactly what he's doing. You, know, that you will understand so many cultural references and so many jokes in movies and comedies and that, you, that you wouldn't possibly get if you hadn't seen Jaws. Uh, so yeah, highly, highly, highly recommended for me.
0: Okay, well, enough gushing from us. I decided that it would probably be a good idea to cut the treacle a little bit and include two bad opinions about Jaws. They were very difficult to find. I had to ignore the obvious trolls on Rotten Tomatoes and found two audience reviewers that disliked the movie, which I will now read to you in the new segment on Late Seating called... Counterpoint. The first review comes from Victor B., and his review is this. A classic that isn't worth your time. The special effects may have been groundbreaking at the time, but it's not 1975, and the concept is ridiculous. The only thing that causes me any fear is the fact that the focus of the story is a great white. Otherwise, this one is a joke and should be remembered for the needlessly hateful attitude towards a necessary part of our ecosystem. <laughs> Even if I did not have green leanings, I could, I could help but see this as a moronic piece put up on a pedestal for no reason with nothing truly magnificent about it. Fuck you, Victor B. Fuck you and your tree-hugging ass. I could not disagree with your review more, and I I hate to say this, but that part where you put in about even if you didn't have green leanings, it's very evident that you do have green leanings, and you don't like this film because of how it portrays sharks. I would like to reiterate that Jaws is a work of fiction, and artists and story writers and filmmakers should not have to worry about how the general public is going to react About a a story about a giant shark that eats people. Now, what he's talking about, of course, is that after Jaws came out, it was astoundingly possible. Sharks in general kind of demonized and people went out and fished them. Um, I read a couple of other reviews that said that the great white shark was nearly hunted to extinction. That is not fucking true. And, And yes, but it also pushed a lot of people into the research of sharks. I know it did me. I was obsessed with Great White Sharks from the moment I saw Jaws up until now. We probably wouldn't have a shark week, nor people actually interested in the actual behavior of sharks, if there hadn't been a gigantic movie called Jaws that piqued people's interest. Do you have a reaction yeah. to Victor B's... Uh...
1: <laughs> I think Fuck You covers it pretty good. Um, well, he's, he seems like one of those guys like that, we, that we've that we talked about a couple of times already, We're like, uh, you someone who fancies themselves as like a movie person yeah. but isn't really a movie person because right. I, it's all subjective. It's all a matter of opinion. If you yeah. think that Jaws is a shitty movie, you're, you're, that's completely fine, right? But if you, if, you, if you watch a movie like Jaws that is such a watershed movie in so many ways and you can't even appreciate how and why it has been influential – like that to me tell clues me in that you're kind of a poser when it comes to the movie person thing. Like you don't have to like everything that's considered a classic. You know, if yeah. you're a literature person, you don't have to think you you can read Moby Dick and think that's kind of a it's not my favorite novel. That's perfectly legitimate. Yeah. But you can't but you can't say Ah oh, Moby Dick, Why would anybody read this piece of shit? You yeah, know?
0: why is this the greatest American novel?
1: <laughs> yeah. You should at least be you should at least be able to acknowledge why it was influential and why other people consider it important. I mean, to so to review Jaws and be like, it's a classic for no reason, and nobody should even watch. Well, you're shut the fuck up. Go watch Transformers for the fourth time, you fucking idiot.
0: Well, the, the, he probably has problems with that too.
1: That's true. It demonizes uh, giant um, robots. robots. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. The other one is from Ben H. Thankfully, it's much shorter, and he's far more succinct. Ben H. writes. Horrible movie! Some good acting, but not the least bit scary. The mechanical shark looked fake, and it commits the worst sin in a horror movie. It's boring! One of the most overrated movies of modern cinema. Ben, Hmm. I want to know what your favorite movie is. I really don't want to jump to the conclusions that you're 12... Or maybe you could be an adult with an incredibly short attention span. Or maybe you like the Saw movies. I don't know what your preferences are, but nothing you said here would convince any intelligent person to stay away from this film, especially after they had to sift through 700 five-star reviews
1: for Jaws.
0: (laughs) I don't know if you want attention, Ben. I'm not sure. I should take this. Point by point, I'm glad that you appreciated some of the good acting. I'm sorry that you weren't scary. Um, And it does not commit the worst sin in movie movie history, which is being boring. I will agree. Being boring is a movie sin. I will agree with you there. Overrated? I'm kind of wondering what you think of the uh, people who love films considering the balance in regards to how well this movie is received and perceived as far as its placement in movie history, you just must be at odds with everything, Ben. I'm very sorry that you are such a loner. Steve, (laughs) anything for our friend Benny?
1: The other people in Ben's junior high class probably fancy him quite a contrarian when it comes to (laughs) film scholarship. Um.
0: (laughs) Nothing beats The Matrix. That movie speaks to me. Oh,
1: God. I'm sure. Oh, I, that would be so perfect. What, if he was we like sh- the biggest Matrix fanboy in the world? <laughs> we should do the Matrix. Oh, uh, I would love to do the Matrix. Um, well, let's
0: do that. Hey, you know what? We got another show coming up in two <laughs> weeks, and we haven't we haven't settled on anything. And people That's have true. been waiting for us to really hate something.
1: <laughs> and lots of people love the Matrix. So
0: I know they do. I know it's it's um, it's a modern classic.
1: It is. It is. You might even say that it's the Jaws of modern whatever kind of movie The Matrix is.
0: To which I would retort, fuck you and the horse you rode in on.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: All right, so enough of that crap. It's now time for our recommendations. Movies that we would like people to uh, to see. Sometimes they're classic movies. Sometimes they're stuff that are out and released now. Sometimes there are things that you've never heard of. Sometimes there are things that you have heard of. I'm going to recommend something that I just watched last night. Um, that I rented. I wanted to see it when it was out in the theaters. Um, it is one of those movies that I'm actually surprised that at this time, considering what the film industry is like, was made and actually put into wide release. It is by a director who I'm a fan of, and that is Wes Anderson's The Budapest Hotel, The Grand Budapest Hotel. This. If you're going to try to go see a realistic movie with realistic characters, delivering realistic dialogue, and anything gritty, boy, you are looking at the wrong movie. This is a confectioner's candy treat of a film for people who like the visual aspect of filmmaking. And I loved it. I loved the Grand Budapest Hotel. He does a, a an odd thing with uh, the frame of the film um, because it's told... The the conceit of the movie is it's a story within a story being told about a story within a story. Um, it's actually a book being read by a girl next to the grave of the author, which then switches to the gra- to the author giving a monologue in 1985. And when they make these transitions, it goes from standard widescreen to letterboxed to. Uh, I think I don't want to say pan and scan, but to a, another frame rate. And then uh, when there, we're going all the way back to the story as it takes place in uh, 1928, 38, it literally goes to the standard square screen size um, of the film. The film is visually brilliant, very well designed. Um, he, Wes Anderson learned a lot from his previous films from Fantastic Mr. Sp- Fox, especially of how he can use... Practical special effects to create fantasy worlds and and then populate them with real people. He does a lot of stuff visually that is humorous and entertaining. And will the movie stick with you for a long time? Probably not, but it's very well cast. Um, this is my favorite Ray Fiennes um, performance in a long time. The characters are unique. We haven't really seen them before, and. It's kind of like, I would liken it to this, it's kind of like a uh, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but for adults. It has that kind of fantasy element. It's a fantasy story for grown-ups. I highly recommend it. Um, Please go out and see it, and if you wind up not liking it, then maybe that kind of thing isn't necessarily your cup of tea. But um, I like movies that are going against the typical grain of what's going on in Hollywood right now. And this movie does not sound, act, or or feel like anything that anyone is making right now, especially anything that's getting a release in theaters. So that's my recommendation, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Steve!
1: <laughs> I, actually, I haven't seen that yet. I really want to see that. I might try to make time to watch that this week. Um, my recommendation is uh, it's, an, it's also a recent movie. It's a movie that actually just uh, came out, I think, just this past week. But and but it's available. It's not. It's in theaters in select cities, but it's also available to watch on demand right now. It it was a simultaneous release, and it is the documentary about Roger Ebert called uh, Life Itself.
0: Ooh, I never even. That's awesome. I didn't know there was one.
1: Yeah, it's 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 uh, directed by Steve James, who's also the director of Hoop Dreams, one of my very favorite uh, documentaries, and one also one of Ebert's favorite documentaries. I remember reading Ebert's review of uh Hoop Dreams way back in like 1994 I think when it came out and 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 really wanting to see that movie and then I did see it and I thought it was great and um but anyway for uh, for a lot of people including myself uh Roger Ebert was a very important voice in our love of movies a very important influence uh he was uh, a newspaper film critic for 40 years, uh, and of course he was also on TV for 25 or 30 years as one half of Siskel and Ebert, and that's where I first uh, encountered him. And And it, the, the influence of seeing two smart film critics talk about movies in an articulate way every week, uh, they influence on me of that can't possibly be overestimated. The Siskel and Ebert was such an important part of my development as a as as a movie lover, of c- giving me ways of thinking about and talking about films, and making me want to go out and see lots of different movies. Uh, it was a huge influence on me. And this film by Steve James called Life Itself uh, is it, it really it's it's I mean. It is kind of a Valentine to Ebert. It's not like a, a critical, objective, journalistic examination of the man's life. It, it's 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 a very warm, very celebratory film. Uh, but that's what I liked about it because I'm totally an Ebert guy. Like he was, I I, I read his writing right up until his death. Uh, his blog was incredible, his reviews, even if you disagreed with him he wrote some of the most wonderfully written film reviews that you'll ever read. Uh, And this movie, there's a lot of interviews with people uh, that knew him in his life. Martin Scorsese is in it, and Scorsese is also a producer on the movie. Uh, Werner Herzog, one of my very favorite directors and people in general, is in the movie. Uh, Errol Morris, another great director. And uh, it's it, it talks about Ebert's life. It talks about his you know getting his first job as a film critic, and then winning the Pulitzer Prize for uh, commentary, which very rarely happens for film critics. Uh, into the '80s with Siskel and Ebert, and then and and it also covers the final few years of his life when uh, he was suffering from cancer, and eventually uh, just last year passed away as a result of that. And how but and how he was able to. To write about his experience and to put words to that in such a beautiful way, uh, and in such a, a fearless way, you know. And he he became in those last years of his life not just a, a a well-regarded film critic, but a voice for for liberalism and for humanism and for you know treating the sick with dignity. And uh, he he was just an extraordinary guy. And it's a really really good movie. So if you if you like Roger Ebert, like I did, if you like movies, if you just love the movies, and you want to hear the story of another guy who really loved the movies, because that's sort of the thread that runs through the whole thing, is that Roger Ebert just loved the movies, and that love of the movies shaped his entire life, uh, so I would highly recommend this film for that, Life Itself, and it's available, it's, it's, it's playing in theaters in various places across the country, and it's also available uh, to rent on uh, Amazon Instant Video, so there you oh, go.
0: Cool. Well, I know what I'm doing tonight, then. <laughs> Yeah, it's very interesting because you know that the um, uh, Gene Siskel and Robert Ebert's show not d- didn't just um, influence criticism; it really in- influenced the way people were able to talk about films. That oh, yeah. uh, just generally, just being able to have an, an exchange with someone else while you're talking about a film, it gave people, I think, uh, permission to look at films as an art form more closely, and 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 have it be that they're their opinions are valid and their their opinions uh mean something um even if it's just a uh conversation across a dinner table um and of course their influence on internet culture is deep and widespread we wouldn't be doing this show if it wasn't for them, Certainly I had no not. interest in doing a lone person, inter- uh, you know, <laughs> reviewing films. It would seem boring to me to just have me come up and go, "Here's another film I like." I just didn't want to. I didn't want to do that. And Steve was someone who I felt was a filmophile, just like I am. So no, that that sounds that sounds awesome.
1: Yeah, it's I'll, really good.
0: You've squandered another perfectly sunny day where you could have been swimming out in the ocean, watching a review of a movie that's nearly forty years old. Thank you for doing so. Um, uh, Hopefully, within two weeks or uh, another two weeks from now, we will be tearing apart the Matrix. I kind of really wanted to. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Let's do it. When style trump substance, you get the (laughs) Matrix. Um, but thank you. Uh, please leave comments down below in the comment section. I do read them, and I do appreciate everyone that uh, writes in, makes suggestions, and uh, um, adds comments. Uh, stuff you ask, I do take to heart, and I will make changes to the show. I'm, I'm Steve is very adaptable, and he does what I tell him to do. Exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're very open to that sort of thing. We realize that a lot of you love movies, too. So... Um, Thank you, and uh, go see a movie this week. Steve? Bye. Late Seating is a Let Me Listen podcast production featuring Steve Shives and Jason Harding. Music by Kevin McLeod. Produced by Jason Harding. You can find more Let Me Listen podcasts at our website at www.lemelistenpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, SoundCloud, and iTunes under Lemme Listen. Please like and leave a review. And thanks for listening.